On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing. Celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023 where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Drizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com and get your favorite drinks delivered today. Howdy, this is Gary Lee Connor, also known as the Microdot Gnome from the old days and Screaming Trees. And you're listening to Whatever, never mind. I'd like to welcome to the program uh, Gary Lee Connor of the Screaming Trees. As I found out about a minute ago, it's not Glenn Lee Connor. Uh, Long story. We won't get into that. Uh, But uh, Gary, thanks for coming on the program. Oh, no problem. How's it going? Not too bad. Where where am I talking to you from? You're in the central time zone. Yeah, I'm in Texas. Uh, San Angelo, Texas. I'm in the middle of West Texas, in the middle of nowhere. How long have you been in uh, Texas, boy? uh, 20 years. I I moved after. I moved out to, well, I met my wife. Uh, actually, at a scrimmage show, but <laughs> in uh, New York, and I sort of moved out there for a while until, like, I don't know, after the band broke up, I yeah, we moved here. But I was living back and forth between New York and Seattle for about five years. Then finally, I've been here and haven't gone for twenty years. So, you know, I'm up in St. Paul, Minnesota, and it's muggy and yeah. hot. What's it like down there? Oh right yeah, it's the, yeah, 104 and pretty <laughs> humid too. It, it's kind of dry here sometimes, but uh, yeah, it's a hundred degrees, like over a hundred degrees every day of the summer, basically in San Angelo. So <laughs> you get used to it. Yeah. It's cold in my house, so that's all that matters. Yeah, uh, you know, give me a little bit about how the band Screaming Trees came together. You don't have to get too deep into it, but just kind of a a short version of how things happened there. Yeah, well, we were all from a small town, a hundred miles uh, east of Seattle, Ellensburg, Washington, and. Um, d- d- part of us like so i was older i was like uh years older than uh van my brother who's a bass player and mark landing was kind of in the middle we had a five-year age spread i was like i guess how old was i when we started like 85 was about 23 and the other guys were like just out of high school mark was kind of in between there lanigan so uh the van mark pickerel drummer and mark lanigan met up in high school and then we uh so they, we already had a band, me and my brother and Mark Pickerel, and they were kind of looking to start a new band, and I uh, started playing with them, and the only place we had to play was my bedroom, so my mom, like, forced them to let me in the band, because they they, <laughs> they, they didn't want me in the band, because we were trying to start a new band with Lanigan. 
So, and eventually I, I started playing bass for a while, and then I switched to guitar. And then, uh, you know, we were at Ellensburg, it was the middle of nowhere. We had no idea what there was any kind of music. There was a some music scene in Seattle. We knew nothing about it. You know, we were just like, uh, sitting on the middle of Washington, not knowing what's going on. We just got together just for fun. And then, uh, we started playing some original songs that I've been writing some stuff on four track, uh, cassette I just got. And that kind of turned into recording a demo, which turned out to be our very first, uh, thing we put out called other worlds. It was released on SST. A few years later. <laughs> then we got signed to, uh, SST, after we put our, our first record uh, with uh, sort of by ourselves, but with the help of guys in Ellensburg, Velvetone Records. And then we put out uh, whoa, three, four records on SST and toured the U.S. and kind of got uh, fairly well-known underground-wise and college radio and stuff. Mm-hmm. But the people in Seattle were kind of like, who the hell are these guys on SST Records? Because SST was like a really big like punk rock right. label that was really prestigious. Was Greg Gann and Black Flag. Yeah. All, yeah. Yeah, well, actually, that was some of the first stuff we played was Black Flag covers. You know, we played Black Flag, and and uh, Black Flag, <laughs> and uh, what else? Um, I'm sorry, it's Jimi Hendrix covers and Cream. It was a single okay. six. So it was like punk rock and sixties, like combined. That was kind of our earlier sound. It was like you know psychedelic and punk rock, kind of mixed together. You got quite so, the zoo going on there. Yeah, I don't know. For some reason, my dog. Decided to bark. Now, was why. it? Now, do you have a dog? Did I hear a cat too? Yeah, I have two dogs and four cats. Yeah, right Nacho, on. Nacho is the most famous one on Facebook. People see pictures of Nacho all the time. <laughs> he's kind of and then I have uh, two dogs, a golden retriever and a lab. Yeah. Hey, the uh, the town you guys then grew up in. Well, uh, well, I'm sorry, you, what was the name of it again? Ellensburg. It's How big right of a city are we talking here? Uh, not too big. Uh, 13,000 people. It was like uh, half college and half uh, rodeo cow town. The rodeo was the most famous thing in town. And um, it was, you know, and plus it was like over the mountains from Seattle. So going to Seattle uh-huh. was always kind of a pain, especially in the winter because it was like snow on the pass and stuff. So, you know, but but I never, when I was a kid, like when I was in high school, I never went to Seattle at all. Then finally, by the time uh, the mid 80s, we started going over some shows and stuff, you know, mostly big arena type shows at first, but yeah. then later, some, uh, you know, in fact, we went and saw Black Flag there. Like, uh, when we first started the band, uh, we were at the in 1985, they played at Thunderbird Gym in Seattle. A lot of people, actually, there were not that many people there, but a lot of people who I know knew later about that show. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like 40, 50, maybe 100 people, you know, you think it would be packed, but it wasn't. Um, so it was kind of weird because, like, you know, a couple years later, we got signed to SST. Like Greg, we signed Greg Ken played, and suddenly we got signed to his label a couple years later. So that all came about just because we, uh, Steve Fisk, our producer, of our, uh, who lived, who was in, in Ellensburg at the studio there, he uh, knew some people from California who were associated with SST. And uh, when we went down there, they saw us play. We put out, like, a record already. And they were, Greg Ginn was, he was really interested in, like, our very first thing, Other Worlds, which was really a lot, not different, but it was really, you know, we never even played live. We've been together, like, a couple of months, and we landing and didn't really know how to sing yet. You know, he hadn't really sang before <laughs> we started the band. It was just kind of, okay, I'll sing. He didn't know we had such a great voice. That's pretty serendipitous, <laughs> so if you listen man. to Other Worlds compared to all our other stuff, I mean, I, I like it still, but it's just, you know, 
it doesn't sound quite like, uh, especially Lanigan's voice. You know, it's a little more. It's really like sort of a garage rock influenced. Um, yeah, kind of for thunder. sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, not but, to sidetrack too far, but like I asked about the population because I grew up in kind of a small town away from like a, right. uh, a bigger city, and I, you know, I was also a guitar player. Was was there a music store in town? Like, how did you keep you know drumsticks, strings, and that nature? Yeah, there was one small music store. I've, I've, got some of my early guitar most of the guitars i got though were like pawn shop guitars mm-hmm. like when i was in high school and stuff i started buying like cheap guitars from pawn shops i had like one of those silver tone uh amp in the case ones you know those yeah. silver that was a cool guitar i sold it stupidly but at first i only bought it for 25 dollars. well all right back then you could actually get a deal like that you know well yeah the 80s were an amazing time for like gear it's like all because everyone's trying to get rid of oh this crap sucks oh digital stuff so you know so you could get like you know our set box organs amazing guitars and amps and effects and you know used to have all sorts of stuff like that you know for really cheap now stuff is like either destroyed or massively expensive exactly (laughs) or both (laughs) yeah both yeah both well uh you mentioned sst your first major label record with, with epic was uncle anesthesia and yeah. Chris Cornell produced that. Now, was that to your guys' idea or the labels? I think it was, no, it was more our idea because we, uh, we got signed to SST. You know, we kind of got, we did a lot of stuff on SST and we toured a lot. And we're kind of like, okay, what are we going to do now? So it's kind of like, well, maybe we'll break up or maybe we'll try to get on a major label because some bands from SST, like the Meat Puppets, had just got signed. So um, we got a manager, Susan Silver, who's manager of Soundgarden okay. and Change, and uh, also chris cornell's girlfriend too i think he married her later you know it's divorce correct but anyway um she helped us get on label and then after we were getting ready to record that record we were looking for producer and you know since a lot of stuff in music was like who you know and you know people connections and you know they're like well we have terry date who produced uh loud and love produce your record you know mm-hmm. and he was more of a metal producer and that was what sort of the thing was like well chris has worked with him and you know soundgarden is more me- even though not really a metal band more much more metal than we were not yeah, even absolutely. metal you know <laughs> so kind of a a uh, go-between you know was the idea for chris to be there and you know he, he did that some and we had a lot of fun with him though and he did some you know stuff like uh back of vocals and things like that did did you guys know him well beforehand, or is this kind of the introduction? Uh, well, I mean, no, we knew him before because, like, um, he, they they played in. Uh, I think have we played? I can't remember if we played with him before. Mark Pickerel knew him, and he actually helped them get their um, that uh, ultra mega okay on SST. He was mm, right. he, like very good about that. He was like sort of instrumental in introducing them to uh, SST for that record because you know they were sort of like, well, what? I think they were kind of working on getting signed to a label, but they're kind of well, you know, what indie credibility maybe or something, which SST definitely had. So. Um, yeah, so that was kind of what the idea of Cornell was, was the go between the, the metal producer and the guy who was in Soundgarden, who he had produced before, you know, who wasn't. Yeah, and he had no real, like, producing credit prior, correct? Uh, I don't think so, no. I mean, you know, producing is a weird thing. I mean, Lagan co-produced, what was that, the Beat Happening, I don't know if it would be happening from Olympia, mm-hmm. but uh, one of their second records was a Jamboree. I don't know what we did. We were in the studio. I played on a few things <laughs> and like, made a couple of comments. I don't know. Because, you know, there's 
you know, there's engineers and there's producers yeah. and uh, engineers usually are very technical and can, you know, and some engineers are also producers and some producers are engineers. A lot of producers are just musicians. Then there's, you know, other kind of producers that are just like, not necessarily musicians, but they, well, like when we did our last record, George Akulis, he was like the most producer producer that we ever worked with. Cause he, he was like old time sixties producer, seventies producer where he came in and like worked on the songs, like arranged, helped us arrange them brought in a lot of different instruments and stuff like that. But, you know, Cornell was more kind of like a friend that was in the studio and uh, offering suggestions about what to do. Okay. Um, he had to leave, I remember, towards the end of the session because uh, he, they were going on tour. Soundgarden was going on tour. So I think we were in the studio like, about six weeks. For so. Well, coming off um, that record and going into Sweet Oblivion, what, was there any special mindset you guys had as a band, like what you were going to try to do with this next record? Uh-oh. Well, we'd gone through, you know, it was interesting with Epic the Records. Um, you know, we got signed before any of the Seattle thing was big at all. It was like, it's kind of big in the underground mm-hmm. indie stuff. You know, like Nirvana and Mudhoney were all like starting to get a lot of press. You know, like they were like the NME and Melody Maker, like darlings, like in England. You know, Everett True wrote a lot about them and stuff. So, you know, we were kind of a little bit involved in that because we were you know had moved a lot of us had moved to seattle at that point um in 1991 and by the time we did sweet oblivion we were all living over there and also we had uh drummer problems you know mark pickerel quit the band right when we were recording uncle anesthesia our first drummer then we had a couple other drummers uh guy sean hollister drummed with us for a while and dan peters from mudhoney played with us on a tour then we that was when we came back from tour for uncle anesthesia in the middle of 1991 when we decided uh-huh. well what we're gonna do we're you know um mark we hadn't really got together to write songs before the very maybe like our very first couple first record we wrote stuff before but mostly i'd been just like writing stuff and giving tapes to mark and he changed lyrics or whatever he wanted you know so it was kind of like a collaboration editing kind of relationship but we uh, were all over in Seattle. So we were all together again. And we got Barrett Barrett Martin playing drums with us, which was kind of interesting because we, we kind of were moving a slightly different direction, just not consciously, but more of a, like a, you know, maybe classic rock type of direction as opposed to psychedelic punk rock kind of thing. Okay. And um, Barrett seemed to really fit the bill for that, you know, as opposed to, well, there's Pickerel played more like Keith Moon. I think uh, Barrett played more like John Bonham or something. Mm, that's a good you know, person. Heavy groove type of thing. So, uh, you know, in fact, it was funny because we played, uh, the first song we played, we'd written in the summer of 1991 in rehearsal, we first played with Dan Peters was the first song on the album Shadow of the Season. And Peters was kind of like, I don't get this. You know, he was kind of like, <laughs> I don't get this song at all. Really? But Barrett was like, the Barrett like picked up like that. It was suddenly like, yeah, this is going to work. You know, this is the direction we're going in. And this drummer is definitely going to work. So, um, yeah. So we spent that whole um, fall of 1991 writing songs together for the first time in a long time and rehearsing the songs. Cause we hardly ever rehearsed before that. And we actually got together <laughs> and uh, rehearsed stuff and, you know, played through things a lot just to see how they work different ways. And, uh, you know, in the middle of this though, like in the fall, suddenly Nirvana hit big, mm. you know, and grunge was suddenly big. You know, I mean, we went to the, uh, 
Well, I remember, uh, you know, their record was coming out, and I remember going to a barbecue and hearing, um, you know, they had barbecues in Seattle all the time, all the people in the bands. It was Dan Peters' house. <laughs> and Chris was there with what a What were they serving? <laughs> but up bar- yeah, barbecue something, probably corn. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Hamburgers. I and- asked the tough questions here, Gary. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, uh, yeah, well, he had a tape of uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit. And I was a, a big Nirvana fan. I really liked him, so I was really interested in what was coming up. Would this have been so, before it came out? What, uh, it was right about the time, you know. It was, like, okay. probably coming out in, like, a couple weeks or something. All right. Cool. Cool. It was the end of August, probably, uh, 91. And uh, and I heard it, and I was like, man, I really liked it. But I was kind of, I never would have thought it would be a hit. It seemed really obscure to me, more obscure than a lot of Nirvana songs, because I heard a lot of the songs that were on Nevermind because they'd been playing them live for like you know months. Like I'd seen them at least a couple times when they played like uh, probably In Bloom and uh, Lithium, and you know stuff like Sliver. You know that was much more poppy than like and suddenly smells like Chinese Spirits got these obscure lyrics, and it did have a cool groove, but you know. I was like, I really, like I said, I really liked it, but I never thought of that. But then, like, two months later at a Nirvana show in Seattle at the Paramount on Halloween, it was like things were suddenly, you know, they sold 300,000 records. I remember we were all, everybody in all the bands were out in front of the lobby of the Paramount, hanging out, including Nirvana, talking. That was, like, the last time. I think that happened. That was the. I think that was the day that the old Seattle scene ended mm. and the new one started. It was like Halloween on 1991, the Nirvana show at the Paramount. I think that just came out in video all that. That was a really good show. I remember they were trying to film video, a video for probably Teen Spirit, which I don't think they used. I think that's what they said, if I remember right. Maybe it was for another song. Then. But whatever it was, they used it later for the live live stuff. But that was like the, you know, the... Uh, backdrop of what we were suddenly wow it was like we're part of this big scene we never meant to be and we didn't really sound like the other bands but uh none of the bands really sounded alike though i mean it's no yeah there's different kind of band you know some of them were more metal some of them were more pop some of them were more you know 60-ish like us you know there was yeah a lot of different things i mean you know people were just doing what they wanted to mm-hmm. it didn't really have anything to do with like i want to be like this band you know that was kind of like the la hair metal scene it was like we want to sound you know they all try to sound alike i guess because they all did sound alike they yeah. all sound like uh, <laughs> pretend like the new york dolls playing van halen or something like that you know yeah i, mean? I get it <laughs> So, it definitely towards the end of the '80s, there was just basically like a, a kind of a, I don't know. They throw all these band, throw the five yeah. bands in a blender, and this is what you get. Uh, yeah, exactly. They were all the same. You know, it was really that was a cool, cool thing to see. It seems a lot of all the bands are different. They were just all doing their own thing because, not because they wanted to be famous, just because they loved playing music. You mm-hmm. know, wanted to play somewhere and wanted to put out records and stuff. And you know, they were already doing that when. It wasn't like they needed the major labels to get big. It's just that, you know, whenever there's something, they smell something brewing, the major labels show up, and this yeah. time it actually and It worked. eventually yeah. happened to grunge a little bit, too. It got kind of stale, but uh, yeah. as oh, far as yeah. really throwing so much product out there that wasn't that good. Um, well, it's just because what happened then was every label in the whole world 
came to Seattle and they signed anybody they could find, you know, yeah. <laughs> and it's like some of the bands that weren't as good got signed. And then they were going all over the world, you know, trying to sign other bands. And, you know, then you got you know, like the second generation grunge bands like Stone Temple Pilots, who at first I was kind of like, man, I didn't really like them at first. Cause I thought they got like one song that says on the Kavana, one that's like Pearl Jam, mm-hmm. one that's like, uh, you know, Alice in Chains. But uh, they actually, their their next record after that first one was much more like, oh, okay, I guess they're not just a grunge band. Sure. They were, like, more interesting. But there were a lot of bands, and Bush, what, Seether, that was, like, probably a fifth-generation grunge band. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I don't know, but that happened in the 60s, too. And, you know, some of the bands I love were just copycat like bands like the Naz, like Todd Rundgren's first band, you know, I mm. love they were one of my biggest influences. Uh, and, uh, but they were, you know, probably back then people were like, Oh, they're just like copying cream and the Beatles, or, you know, I get it. But they are the monkeys, you know, I always love the monkeys, but you know, they were a manufactured band. So I don't know if it was quite that bad with the grunge, but, uh, I Got like TV, out. too. <laughs> yeah. We're talking about the, the making of the record, then. What was the band? Like, were you guys all kind of like a unified front, or like an all-for-one kind of deal? What was the vibe like? Well, we always have problems getting along. I mean, you know, I mean, especially me and Lanigan, just because um, I, don't, I don't really know why we always had trouble getting along. But, you know, I don't know if you've read his book. But, Not yet. I got an excerpt. Yeah. I do have a question about it, but uh, it, it's... Yeah. It's, but anyway... Okay. But yeah, so um, yeah, we, you know, Van and I were brothers, so there was that, which was good and bad. You know, it was like sure. being family. It was like we were a dysfunctional family. That's what we always compared ourselves to, you know, basically. So you know, we weren't like we weren't like Pearl Jam, like 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 the cover of ten, like oh, you know, they're holding their hands up like together, like uh, you know, with that cover. Oh, right? Like, yeah, yeah. We weren't. We wasn't like that. It was like you know, it was like bunch of guys who somehow accidentally like got signed to sst but really love to make music and we're trying to make the best music we possibly could you know and um somehow you know we got involved in the seattle scene with grunge and that just took it to another level you know if they hadn't been for that it would have just been one of sst bands you know i've i would love to scream the trees you know if I still, I do like old screaming tree stuff, but I mean, like, if I never, if I wasn't in the band, I would, you know, be, man, that stuff was great. I would have been a huge fan. I would, or if I like, you know, was like the same stuff I do now, and I was like younger, I was like discovering the screaming trees like I did, like the 13th floor elevators or the seeds or something like that, you know? That's the way I look at the cool. band, the respect. But uh, yeah, we, so, you know, the thing was, by the time, we had finished the tour of Uncle Anesthesia. It was kind of like, well, you know, Epic's going to sign us, or the Epic signed us, but are they going to do a second record? And they did want to do a second record. And we didn't sell, we did sell quite a few, you know, for, for a band like us, like we think we sold something like 50,000 copies of Uncle Anesthesia, which was comparable to what a lot of the indie bands were selling, you know, like Nirvana was probably selling maybe, maybe more than that on Sub Pop, but something like that. You know, 50,000 records is a lot if you're a, indie if you're on a major label not so much but it's for a first record that you know they're trying to promote they looked at it you know it's like well maybe we'll make a step up on the next record so they did want us to do the record and we got it all lined up to go out to new york and record with uh 
John and Yellow and Don Fleming is the producer. And Yellow is the, the engineer. And uh, Fleming was producer. I look at that more. That was more like, even though it says Fleming's a producer, it was much more of a team. Okay. Where I, I would, they should have both production credit, even though you know, because Fleming's more like the musician guy. Although he did have a lot more input, I think, than than like maybe Chris Cornell did, because he done it before a few times, like produced bands and continued doing it after Sweet Oblivion. And I mean, how did it compare? What was the was the budget bigger for this record? I guess is kind of where I'm going. Uh, yeah, probably, I don't know. It was that much bigger than Uncle Anesthesia. I mean, Uncle Anesthesia we did at London Bridge, which is where a lot of Seattle bands mm-hmm. like Soundgarden recorded, and it was a good studio. You know, it was probably the first time we actually. You know, well, it was weird because Velotone was in Ellensburg, where we recorded all our SST records was nice but the equipment was like it has had a little eight track okay that we did all our early records on the eight track but and then finally we recorded the buzz factory with jack and dino we got i think either a 16 or 24 track so you know but um equipment wise london bridge where we did uncle last season was like a lot more fancier than uh <clears throat> than anything that we've done but you know we, the one we went to in uh new york was just kind of a wasn't crummy but it was just a you know functioning studio called baby monsters down close in the north of part of the Grants village and uh they had a lot of good you know good equipment stuff and, that we were able to use and we just met how long were we there about a month i think okay recording and you know we were pretty pretty well prepared for it except for the fact that <laughs> we had all these songs since we've been working together we had a lot of songs, like probably about half of them, that only had like lyrics that we didn't like or lyrics that were kind of halfway done, you know, because Mark was more, instead of me like writing a full song, giving it to Mark, and he'd like edit it or, you know, change the lyrics how he wanted to. It was like we had songs that maybe Mark had been kind of singing something, but he didn't know, you know, it may be like a song with the title with a bunch of swear words that you don't want to use and you want to change it, you know? Okay. So, um, when we got our basic tracks done, and it was Mark's turn to sing, and um, he disappeared like in a he. It's weird because the first half of the band, he was totally sober. Then we had his van wreck. He, in high school, he was like a drunkard, hellion, you know, always in trouble. But then nice. he cleaned up for some reason. Right about the time we started the band, he was sober for several years. Until um, about 1991, we were on tour with uh, for the Uncle Anesthesia album. We had a van wreck, and right after that, they started drinking again. They didn't stop. Then later, he started doing other stuff like dope, you know, heroin stuff. But for that year or two, we were doing Sweet Oblivion. It was actually probably really important to the record that he was drinking because suddenly he was like really social and he wanted to hang out, which he hadn't been before, and he wasn't later. When he was doing heroin, um, and you're talking that, just kind of like a, a band kind of vibe, right? Like, to, yeah, that was the first. That was probably the first, the only time we did have a band kind of vibe. It's like go to the guy's house, write songs, just hang out, have fun. You know, that was what was happening. And uh, you know, wow, uh, that's cool. By the time we got to New York in the studio, though, and he's definitely been drinking a lot, and it, it was show wearing on him. And anyway, he disappeared for about. A couple days on a bender showed up 
uh, ready to sing, but uh, having a huge hangover, had us leave the studio. But he, in three days, he sang everything. And I don't know if he'd been writing this stuff, lyrics before or what, but so we heard it. We're like, oh my God, we can't believe it. It's amazing. You know, I, mean, I think the best singing Mark ever did was on Suitability. That's how like, the the rat lead singer did it too. <laughs> yeah, really. Like, yeah, I don't know. Somehow he managed to do it, and so that was like, okay, we saved the record. So <laughs> you guys weren't you weren't there at all when, when he was doing the vocal tracks, then, huh? No. Yeah, by that point, we learned to stay the fuck away from the studio. <laughs> what Mark's saying is like, don't get close to the studio when you sing. Yeah, I mean, in the early days, I think we were. Uh, in the studio when he was singing. I remember on some track, I can't remember what it was, it was on one of the SST records, or, there was like some, was supposed to be a scream at the end of one of the songs that I'd done or something, and he wouldn't, he didn't want to scream, but finally he just did the scream, and I could still hear him being mad when he did it, but it wasn't a great scream, but it was like, he was just because he was pissed at it, so every time I hear that, what was that, in the forest or something? <laughs> can't remember if that's what it was, but... Right on. Yeah, so we definitely didn't go to the studio. He was saying it. Oh, that's you know, that's the thing. He could be the grumpiest, nastiest guy in the world or the nicest guy in the world, fun to be around. It's just, you know, hard to tell. <laughs> so you got to be always on your guard. Let me ask you something because um, I heard this record when it came out. I mean, like, yep. I was uh, like uh, second year of college when when grunge really broke. So right, you know, this album was yep. like in that second wave. Perfect timing from for me as far as looking back. But um, yep. this record didn't hang with me, and so getting record uh, prepared for the episode that we recorded where we talk about it. I was blown away. I was like, this is exactly the kind of thing I would have wanted to listen to. Then it's a, it's a great record. Where I'm going with that is that the single soundtrack came out a few months ahead of the, the album uh, of yours, yeah. and it had that song, and, and it was released as a single on it. Right. My personal theory, maybe you can tell me if, if you thought that at the time, was I actually think it probably stole some of your thunder as far as the album, because you know someone like me might look at the two things and like, which one do I want? I mean, I really like that Screaming Trees song, but I love, I already know Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, and, and Soundgarden, yeah. they're all on here. You know what I mean? Uh, did, yeah. Was there any talk at the time that like maybe it actually hurt the sales, or am I just got my head up my Well, we got, it actually came out right at the time the record came out. So that's possible, the sales thing, because people might not have bought Sweet Oblivion because of that. But on the other hand, way more people heard of us than, mm -hmm. than because of that and some of the tours we did later uh, that year. So, and that's it's probably a double-edged sword. I can see that happening. You know, it's like we weren't even supposed to be on it, and there was some, like, political junk going on and record label type stuff, and we managed to somehow pull a coup and get on it. But then they didn't give us a, as much royalties or something, and, like, we got an MTV buzz clip, but we only got half the plays because, like, that Paul Westerberg song got the other half of the toys. <laughs> so, you know, it was it was like not quite like, oh yeah, we're gonna promote this totally. It was kinda like, yeah, we're gonna promote it totally <laughs> you know, like that. Um, let's talk about that song just a little bit because you yeah. know one of, the, one of the things that i commented when because we also did the the singles soundtrack mm -hmm. is on the list too so this song yeah. came up then first and i and my comment right. to the guy i was doing the show with was this is the perfect song i mean there's there's yeah. everything is done right here and, and that just came out today so when i was yeah. recording the episode for sweet oblivion the guy who i was recording 
that with, he had not a, he had no choice. He used the exact same terminology. So, yeah, what a beautiful tune. How did it come together? Well, Van came up with it. It was like we worked on it a little bit, but mainly the like, bass the player. Yeah, my brother. Yeah, he wrote some really good songs. He wrote as many songs as I did. But that was his. Him and Lanigan had gone over to Ellensburg. We were, we were living in Seattle at that point. And they went over to Ellensburg, and they had to take an acid or something. And it has something to do with the acid trip that Van had. And like nearly lost you because he was like on acid or something. I don't know. That's how the song started. Van brought it back, and they, you know, it was it was like you know, I can't remember what the verses were like, but the chorus was like it is and okay. we worked on it um, and i helped them a little with the verses and then we it was kind of interesting we, we really knew that there was something different and that could be a single because we kept playing it over we'd like actually get in rehearsal and like play it for like 20 minutes this is the groove of it and stuff we never did anything like that with a song before it was kind of weird because um you know usually it was just like mark wouldn't even come to rehearsal and like maybe we get together and play the songs with our you know without the singer and then or maybe we'd even just give a demo tape to our drummer, Mark Pickerel, and say, learn the song, we'll go to the studio and record it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but suddenly we're rehearsing, especially that song, a lot. And it was, you know, kind of that funky groove, different than anything we'd really done, I guess. It doesn't seem like it now, but it kind of did at the time. And uh, so, yeah, we kind of like had an idea that, that would be the first single and, and stuff like that. So, um, you got that kind of cool little pseudo lead that kind of repeats itself through that too. Is that all you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like yes. it. <laughs> yeah, it was really fairly easy. I don't know that solo is like really. It probably sounds hard, but it's just like all thirds up on the neck. Well, I do have one question of curiosity. Why was for celebrations past listed as a bonus track basically on every release? Yeah, oh, because it had to do with vinyl. The, the in 1992 was pretty much the year that the major labels decided the vinyl was dead. It doesn't seem like it was that early, but it was. Yeah. Uh, and they released the record on vinyl, but they released it with no cover. It was a black cover and it was called the One Foot in the Grave Vinyl Edition. And there was only room for... I don't know. I actually, I don't wonder if the re-releases had. I, it's on the, the current vinyl you can buy. Is it on the current vinyl? Yeah. yeah okay, that's cool. Yeah, um, that, the idea, I guess, that they couldn't fit. Either it couldn't fit on there or they just wanted to have something extra to put on the CD so people might buy both of them. I'm not sure which. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's a song on the record. Usually the bonus is like the last one. You know what I mean? Yeah. I know. I don't, I don't really know what prompted them to do that particular but that was why part of the reason was because they were putting it on vinyl without a real cover which kind of sucked later on we got you know uh, some other vinyl came out well like the u i think uk uh, england had vinyl for it so at least there were vinyl copies you know um but yeah they decided vinyl was dead and they were just going for cd so yeah in fact it had the cut the cover they just put a cd cover inside the wrapping of the uh vinyl <laughs> This exists? Yeah. yeah, you can see. I've seen them on uh, on uh, eBay before, yeah. Like, uh, like, I'm officially going to add that to my list of things to look for when I'm yeah, vinyl. Foot and grave vinyl edition. That's what it's called. Yeah, nice way to, like, you know, call the fucking so, record as black and call one foot in the grave. Say that all the way through. So it's Screaming Trees, Sweet Oblivion, One Foot in the Grave, vinyl edition? 
yeah, I believe that's what it was. Something real close to that. So. Oh my god. Um, yeah. That I'm is black. It's like Spinal Tap with the it's black. Like, <laughs> black. Not more black. Like, yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks for releasing a record on a block. This block. <laughs> Luckily, that one did a lot better, so it wasn't. A- well, that didn't come <laughs> up in any of my research. Uh, that's amazing. Um, yeah, butterfly is a standout track for me. I the, the, something about that line. I'm sick and I want to go home. And, and the way Mark yeah. sings it is just. I mean, it, it's not yeah. a pretty sentence when you read it, but it sounds so beautiful the way he sings it. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's an example. Like, I think. I think pretty much all that like i had that song and it was just sort of the verse or i mean the uh the choruses the butterfly thing but it was like slightly different lyrics i think the only words were like butterfly okay and uh, something else it's not that he he wrote all the other stuff and we came up with a new uh chorus but that's pretty much mostly almost all his lyrics except just butterflies <laughs> uh so yeah that's an example of, like the lyrics that he wrote um we've talked about a couple of times what, what are some of your favorite tracks on the album Oh, my favorite track. I really like Winter Song. That one got mm. written right before we um, went in the studio because we, like, Lanigan, uh, you know, this is back when he was drinking days. He'd, like, show up. He showed up at 6 o'clock in the morning at my house. So we were going to leave a couple days later to go to New York. And he's, like, trying to get me to drink beer. It's like, I don't want to drink beer at 6 in the morning. It's <laughs> like I tried to pour it out. He's like, no, you got to drink it. And then I can't remember why, but we called Van and Barrett, and we all end up driving around Seattle and Van's really shitty old sob doing something. And I don't even know what we were doing, why we were driving around, but the whole day was just kind of crazy because, like, wake them six o'clock, trying to have them to drink beer and driving around with the whole band in the fucking little car, which is like totally atypical. You know, what, what kind of beer happy. would it have been? Do you remember? Uh, probably some shitty, like, Budweiser. Rainier? I, mean, I don't think I ever drank much. I don't know. Okay. I wasn't a beer drinker. So, yeah, right here. Um, so, yeah, the, and the last thing I remember about that landing in the day was we dropped him off at like a strip club downtown because there was some porn actress he like was supposedly appearing there. That was like the end <laughs> of that day. And then I went home and, you know, like typical, I'd like play my guitar and I was talking to uh, my, well, girlfriend, wife now at the time oh she lived in new york but she i was talking about like songs you know i was thinking about writing songs she said we should write a song like like uh this cheap trick song called down i don't even know the song but it doesn't really sound anything like winter song but i was like thinking of that song right i was writing a song and it came up with a winter song and uh that's like a song an example of pretty much all me i think landing had a couple lines in that song but it was pretty much all stuff i wrote it's a love song, or? Uh, no, it's a song about Mark Lanigan showing up at six o'clock in the morning. And it's, well, I love that. It says, and it's not. And instead of Lanigan, it's Jesus knocking on the door. Ooh, Jesus nice. knocking on my door. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, you're not going to get that story else, but. <sighs> no. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, yeah, that, yeah, I love that tune too. Uh, Troubled Times. Also, Go ahead. Get, yeah. Sorry. Oh, the other one I really love is the one that Mark and Van wrote all together was uh, Julie Paradise. We played that live for years. It was great. The, the, the last song. Yeah, I really love that song. It's just like, you know, really uh, cool rock song and great vocals. And It's a great, know, great album closer, too. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So, what about uh, Troubled Times was another song that Van wrote. 
And then Mark ended up, I think a lot of lyrics Mark came up. That was one of the ones that, uh, what was the name of that song? Uh, oh, yeah. It was, <laughs> that was the one. We, this is an example of like the way the lyrics were like, you know, a uh, band has, we never could come up with like a, uh, a title for it or a chorus part. And we just sang, I think it was Shit My Pants on Monday. That was like, <laughs> instead of like trouble time, it was like Shit My Pants on Monday. Shit my pants. And you know, in fact, God, this is a horrible story. Sort of not horrible, but our A and R guy, who was really cool, he but he decided that he liked that so much. The demo of it was was Lanigan singing that that he was going to put it out on a forty-five. Like somehow these things that was an indie credibility. It probably just would have been really stupid. And thank God, our manager, who wasn't super, we, our manager was Kim White at the time. She was like also a good friend of ours. She liked enough to call me up and she, her slip of the tongue about it. I was like, what? So I called Lanning and he was like pissed off, of course, you know. He was going to do this like before the record came out. <laughs> no, luckily it didn't happen. But that's some of the other songs are kind of like that, you know, like it's like, God, we don't know what we're going to call it. So we'll just like sing some crappy thing, you know, that doesn't make any sense over. But luckily Mark came up with stuff. Yeah. Even that to him, you know, I mean, I didn't have to like write the stuff at the last minute. He did. So he is a a pretty unique singer, like a lot of the, the singers that came out yeah. of that, that scene at the time. But it just kind of like the smoky, just I don't know yeah. how to describe it. It's it it, it it's so oh. earnest. Uh, it's, yeah, I love his voice. I mean, it's like that was one of the things when we played down in California for the first time. I think it helped us get signed to SST is like, you know, they've probably heard the other world's tape where maybe clear voice where he sings a lot better but you know they heard him live they're like man this guy can sing and you know i i he didn't know it until he started singing some you know for the first few months of the band and we didn't know it. and then you know i i think he's got one of the best voices in rock i mean it was like honored to have him sing on all the songs back then you know i still like to listen to his stuff once in a while I listen to some of his new stuff he's he's done so many records with other people it's confusing how much stuff yeah, he has yeah. but yeah i mean his voice you know was really really uh huge part of the screaming trees you know him um that's one reason I would never, you know, in fact, we made a deal like back, uh, it was before, right around the time we got signed Epic that neither of us would be the screaming trees without the other one, me and Lanigan. Oh, nice. Yeah, I mean, because that's where I was going next. I really think um, your approach to, especially your rhythm playing, is uh, is definitely unique, and, and you kind of have your own signature sound and yeah. the way you approach stuff. Um, uh, yeah, I'm guessing you're not classically trained. <laughs> no, well, it's weird because like I am like musically classically trained because I, I seriously. Played, well, I was I was a trumpet player in high school. Oh, okay. And I went to college and majored in music performance, and I took all. But at the same time, I was playing guitar. But I never applied any of the musical you know, stuff to the guitar. I never could sit down and read music with the guitar and play it. Okay. But I write, you know, I took like two years of like hard ass music theory and trumpet lessons and everything, but I never played guitar in that context or, you know, I didn't even said anything about playing guitar and like, you know, music in the music department. I went to this, the college in Ellensburg. It's almost like you're using two different sides of your brain when you're playing one instrument versus a guitar. Yeah. 
and you know, I just didn't like practicing. I didn't really like playing the trumpet like I did guitar. Guitar was like totally oh, different thing. You. And uh, you know, it was just um, that was what I was meant to do: is play guitar, not play trumpet. So I knew I wanted to be in music from like really early on. But it was funny because like I remember uh, like our senior party like a graduation party like i remember like talking to somebody and i was like yeah what do you want to do your, you know do with your life it's like i want to be in a rock band which took a few years but i did manage to do that and, you know i didn't make a living on it completely but you know did all right yeah. way better than most people even dream of so of i can't complain no, I, about it. <laughs> I, you can count me on that list yes i uh yeah i gave her hell and fell well short of the screaming trace <laughs> yeah i mean it's weird it's weird looking out, out back and what's ha- what happened the other day have you ever seen that um uh you know charles peterson the rock photographer did a lot of nirvana and so oh, sure yeah yeah, he had put out a book about uh, 10, 15 years ago called I Streaming Live. I know, I, I know the book, but I haven't seen it. Yeah. Well, it's like I I had I was out in the garage the other day, and I was like, oh, why did I put this in the garage? Because it's pretty cool. But look at that thing. I remember when I first saw it. It was like it's like it was like my high. That's like my high school yearbook. You know, <laughs> I yeah. mean, all those people. <laughs> those were like you know because I hated high school and I was like a total like you know nerd. And didn't. Well, nobody else liked me. I was like I'm the only guy with long hair, probably the whole class. <laughs> right. But yeah, it was just like you know, those are our friends. Those are. But at the same time, it's also like looking like at a you know like book of like you know '60s rock icons or something like that. It's like that's really weird, you know. Thinking thinking that because and and it's cool because over the years, you know, it's obviously we became at least a decent, you know part of that you know i'm mm-hmm. not saying we're the biggest band in the world or anything but you know we all all we ever wanted to do was be a band like be a real band that had records and play shows and you know people had heard of and that's what we did you know we had, that was the dream come true yeah it would have been a dream come true before we got epic, <laughs> and then that was all just weird okay you know weird and surreal after that well, let's talk about the album cover a little bit because i'm not really sure what's going on here yeah. is this just uh some random thing or was there uh kind I'm of a sure point to it going on either <laughs> well <laughs> we we did photographs like uh some of the like the ones that are on the back we yeah this weird place it kind of sucks because you can't tell what a weird place it was it was in new york harbor this old ship that was all rusted out and had been made into a bed and breakfast. It was still all rusted out though. Hmm. And we took a bunch of pictures and those, the cover was this control panel down in the engine room. And while they were taking the pictures of us, we were like, Oh, take pictures of that. So they did a bunch of those. And the only real association of what it was supposed to kind of be was like, uh, you know, the, the, the term sweet oblivion would kind of like be like, uh, you know, like, dying or you know um like maybe electric like the idea of like an electric chair switch you know like the big switch like a cartoon where they pull down the switch yeah and would kind of that was like where we got the idea to put sweet oblivion on the cover like that kind of isn't there like a switch i think yeah yeah i'm looking at it right now somewhere oh yeah there's one right there yeah Yeah, right yeah see it says sweet oblivion and it's got that switch that was sort of the idea and then somebody was like well how's it photo of the, band, the cover's like okay so take us a little hole <laughs> that's a really good photo but it's kind of hard to see because you can't even hardly see it it's so small of course mm-hmm. i'm looking at the cd but still yeah. i like it by the way i just a little baffled oh. as to what was going on yeah it's i mean it's it's obscure but all our 
album covers are kind of like that. You know, part of the problem with being, you know, the the way our the politics and vibe of the band was that, like, I had a lot of you know ideas artistically, but you know they were mostly real psychedelic, and Mark wasn't into that. And okay, I learned early on that not to bring up my ideas for album covers. <laughs> the only the only uh, idea I ever got on an album cover was on uh, Invisible Lantern or second SST record really on the back cover like oh there was like a bunch of little squiggly psychedelic looking vines around the pictures and stuff I did all that stuff that was my uh, way yeah and then well on my first solo album Purple Outside was on uh, one of the SST associated labels uh, New Alliance band did a record like that was right at the same time uh Lanigan did his first solo album on Sub Pop. Bam and I did solo albums on New Alliance, which it, the original idea was to have all three of us do solo albums. Mm. This was like in between Buzz Factory and like um, Kiss. Yeah, exactly. That was the idea. Mm. So we talked again about it. He's like, "Yeah, sure. You know, he basically let you do whatever album you wanted to." Um, and uh, Mark had moved over to Seattle and got hooked up with Sub Pop at the time, and. They just, I don't know. But anyway, so Van's, yeah, Van's record was, uh, he had an actual band called Solomon Grundy. I just had like, mine was sort of a band. It was just me and my brother Patrick played drums. So, but if you look at the cover, that's called uh, Purple Outside Mystery Lane, was on New Alliance Records. That's like the kind of thing I was screaming covers back then. You know, it's like this old guitar with flowers. Um, and psychedelic writing. So the psychedelic kind of influence in the band comes from you? Only me, probably. Yeah, yeah. that's kind of where I'm picking up there. <laughs> since I wrote the majority of the songs, it really, you know, showed up. It's kind of tough with, like, the one guy, the guy writes almost everything, is massively into psychedelic. It wants to have, like, you know, like, I don't, you ever heard of Plastic Land? <laughs> they were uh, like a, they were like a psychedelic revival. Oh, no, band. no, no. Yeah, they were, I love, you know, one of my favorite bands, but that's what I would have been like. Okay. You know, a lot of there was a lot of psychedelic '60s revival bands in the '80s, and I just I really wanted to be like that, you know. Um, well, let me ask you this: Do you feel like you, you missed out on that, or do you think that maybe it was good to have this kind of get and give and take, where like you know somebody else is coming at you with a different idea, and you kind of have to decide where to go? Oh, we ended up being the opposite, but that was what a lot of the probably tension between me and Lanigan was, at least on the writing side of things, was that I wanted to do that and he didn't want to be psychedelic at all. So, you know, it kind of was tough for him when, I don't know, you know, he could have written stuff and brought it to us. He hit this weird, but even though he did write, you know, with us sometimes, he never once said, here's a song I wrote, why don't we do it? Not even later on. I hmm. never could understand why. Because, you know, he'd always be, especially when we we're trying to come up with the follow-up to, to Sweet Oblivion, you know, he's, like, pounding on us to come up with something, like, nearly lost you or something, you know, just something that he likes. And since he was, like, on heroin at that time, it was not making it any easier. And, uh, but he was writing songs. You know, he did a solo album during mm-hmm. that time, the second his second album, the Whiskey for the Holy Ghost, so... Why didn't he have us doing some of those songs? Or a couple of them. They're pretty damn good stuff. Really good stuff on the record. I get to hear us have done. And it would have been interesting having a couple of his songs because it would have mixed things up a little because his melodies and stuff were quite a bit different than even even when, you know, he doesn't, even the Screaming Tree songs that he 
pretty much totally wrote like probably the only two totally wrote were, um, with Van though come up with music were Dollarville and Julie Paradise. Okay, I can hear some of his melodies in there, but if you listen to the, even those two songs and then compare them to his solo stuff, it really doesn't sound like it. You know, he's got a certain melodic way that he does does things writing wise, and that never ever came into at least any stuff we released. Hmm. Uh, it's kind of I don't I never understood why he didn't have a speed, you know because it was we were under a lot of pressure between uh, Sweet Oblivion and Dust, which is one reason it took so long. To, yeah, let's get into that. Why did it take so long? I mean, was uh, well because I know Barrett. You know, was did that Mad Season project you mentioned? Yeah. You know, Mark's uh, um, solo record, but and even Mark was involved a little bit in the Mad Season thing. I mean, right? Um, well, they, they were on? off doing that stuff, and I was banging my head against the wall writing about fifty million songs, trying to come up with stuff for Dust. Yeah, um, I, I I just got married, uh, and I was. My wife lived in New York still. I was trying to spend as much time as I could out there, but I had to end up getting an apartment still in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And uh, sitting there for about two years writing songs, and you know, I would write write stuff all day long. You know, hopefully come up with a new song, take a tape to Atlantic. He in the morning he'd be calling me like, "What's going on?" And that <laughs> meant like, "Are oh, you working on a song? Right? You better fucking be." Wow. <laughs> And then I take the tape to Mark, maybe stop and get him fast food. And, you know, and did he say like, oh, come on in and let's listen to it? No, it's like hands comes out the door. What what kind of fast food did he prefer? Is there, is uh, I remember a lot of Jack in the Box. Okay. Of course, there wasn't enough food, but it had to be open late at night. Okay. Because it was like I'd drive across Seattle like at uh, you know, two in the morning. A number the six almost, Jack in the Box. Right, almost every night. So um, I'd be driving over there. So there was no traffic, which was nice. So. Yeah, okay. But then the next day, I might get a call maybe once every couple weeks saying, oh, this is really good. Because usually I just wouldn't hear from him. And later in the day, he'd be like, what are you doing? You know, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. what about what I just brought you? Yeah. If he didn't say anything, I just assumed that he thought it sucks. So, but a lot of it did because I had to do so much. You know, I had to write. I had, it was like horrible. Instead of like loving to write songs and just doing it because I like it, it was like this horrible job that wasn't get paid hardly anything for. Uh, stuck in Seattle, my wife's in New York, writing the songs for the next record. And we we actually tried to record it with Don Fleming again in late 93, but I hadn't been writing stuff, and Mark was not in his social mood anymore, like he was on Sweet Oblivion. And the it just, you know, we had some, there was a couple of songs like Dying Days was written back then, we tried doing that, and a couple of, it just didn't come together, and we, you know, said, well, we got to try to write more songs. So that was the idea, but it, it turned into like a two year long waiting period, basically where I was like working my ass off. And see, that was the darkest time of my life. Those two years, just like, but somehow we managed to come up with all the songs and van helped quite a bit, but Atlanta again, I mean, that's the thing with dust is like, that's probably like the album that is the least amount of Lanigan on it of any record mm. we ever did. Which is weird because, like, you know, the two made, I mean, it's got a hell of a lot of really good uh, re- c- critical acclaim, you know, yeah. even though it didn't sell as much, it sold it right, too. No, and, it's uh, a really you know, good record. It's surprising yeah, that, that he didn't play as big a role. 
No, he didn't. You know, I've thought about that quite a bit lately because of stuff in his book. And, uh, yeah, it's weird. That, I mean, he was, we got, once we got in the studio, everything went pretty well. We got along well and everything. And even his vocals, I mean, he sings pretty good on dust, but compared to Sweet Oblivion, it's just not quite, yeah, not quite there, you know. Um, wasn't his, like, the most amazing thing I've ever heard from him because I knew he could do better, you know, <laughs> but, which was a little bit disappointing, but <clears throat> only in a few spots. And I don't think if you hadn't, you know, written the songs, you wouldn't think about it. So, cause you know, cause at that, by that point I had sort of expectations like, well, I could do this and it might sound all right, but if he does it, it's going to sound fucking amazing. You know? Yeah. So, but when there's like a couple parts, like of certain songs where it's like, man, he didn't quite do that the way I thought it was going to be, you know, but that's getting nitpicky. So sure. Overall it turned out great. So yeah, no, I like the record a lot. Um, uh, going back to sweet oblivion a little bit. Uh, when, when was the last time you, you actually sat down and listened to it? Sweet oblivion. Oh, the whole record, probably maybe a long time, years <laughs> and years. Well, I do listen to certain songs. Like I, the other day I watched all our videos cause I was posting. So, you know, I post a lot of stuff on the Facebook. On the yeah. You run that page, right? Yeah, the, the, the group. Yeah. Around. I just started, I didn't start really doing it much until about a little over a year ago. But just because I was like putting out a, a new record of mine, I was like, maybe I should start promoting Screaming Trees too, and then you know use my rec- get my record promoted too. So I kind of mix the two up, and uh, which has worked out really well. But yeah, I, what did I listen to? Um, oh, oh, nearly lost you because I was watching the videos talking. The videos are kind of ridiculous. <laughs> nearly lost you, okay, but the other ones after that, Butterfly, starts getting ridiculous. And then all I know is pretty ridiculous and Slurred and Broken is just like over the top. Like, why the hell? And plus, they cost so much money. You know, it was like, I think the budgets were like $150,000, yeah. $200,000 by the time we got on dust. So crazy. That was the one thing weird with that. You know, Sweet Oblivion, they're kind of like, we're like, we don't really, you know, they, they were promoting us, but they weren't like throwing everything behind us. But like when we did dust, they were like, man, we'll give you whatever you want. Tour money, money for videos, you know, whatever. But our stupid managers we had by that point, we always went through all different managers. Is this Q Prime at that point? Q Prime. Yeah. Those guys were a fucking nightmare. I hated them, man. They were just the people who worked there were really cool. But the guys uh Peter mentioned, I don't know about Bernstein, but Mans was just a fucking dickhead man and, and he like I, I couldn't believe what what was going on that when the whole time i was writing songs we were having to give them to them like why since when does your manager have anything to do with what your music doing musically i don't know that never happened before it's like you know they might want to listen to it but they're not saying like this is gonna work this is you can't do this song you can't uh yeah that was like that that was another probably one of the problems of taking so long was those guys being our managers. How did they um, get in the picture? Know. It was like uh, R.A. and our guy, Bob Pfeiffer, knew him. And we were having trouble with uh, Kim White. Was having, She was just having some personal problems, I think, and um, wasn't really doing a very good job. So he was like uh, looking for somebody new. And they were like, they wanted to get into grunge because this was probably the middle of 93, but when we started getting them, early 93. And um, so... They were like, okay, we'll try these guys. And they didn't know what they were getting into because that was in Lanning and was really getting bad into the okay. heroin scene and stuff. 
But uh, yeah, later they got um, Smashing Pumpkins a year or two later, and that was probably more interesting. I don't know how that worked out. I don't know if they stayed on Keep Rhyme or not, but yeah, but the, you know, having them, they they liked it. Def Leppard and and Metallica, and, uh, yeah, Metallica, oh, Dokken yeah, Metall- back in the day, yeah. And- yeah, and then you know we that was probably one of the reasons we got on the Law of Palooza with Metallica was because they were our managers, which seemed like a big score. By 96, it wasn't quite as big a deal to be on Lollapalooza, although it was right. still a tour as opposed to one show like it is now. Um, that was, we, had a lot, we had a good time on that. That's is that the only uh, Lollapalooza you guys were involved in? Yeah, yeah, I went to a couple of those, but that was the only one I played. Right, yeah, yeah. that's what I mean. Yeah, it sucks because, you know, maybe if we had got a record out, like, you know, maybe but a couple of years earlier, we would have been on like 94 or something like that. But I mean, it's easy to um, look back and, and, and think that, but that definitely seems like that had to hurt, right? The, the delay there. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I, on the one hand, artistically, I'm like, you know, I I love the uh, Dust and all the other records, too. But, you know, the, in fact, that one's probably like the most, like, what we were trying to achieve, I think we finally achieved it with that record, and it had a lot to do with our producer, George DeCoulias, because he brought in, like, you know, people like Ben Montense to play keyboards, you know, from Tom Petty and Heartbreakers. Mm-hmm. So that's an amazing job. A lot of stuff like that, and, you know, but it, it's like, you know, it's a, like a great old rock record or something like that. And we made it, you know, it is an old rock record now. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Shut up. Uh. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Was there like so, well how did how did the band break up was it just kind of like yeah. a official thing a big fight or was it just a time passed and everybody says well I guess we're done Yeah basically because what happened was by the time we we finished the Law Palooza uh we did so much we did nifty little tour US tour at Oasis when they were trying to break in the US it didn't really work out for them hmm. partially because they canceled the tour yeah. after a few days but um yeah we went to England and then uh, in early 97, we played some shows in, nor- in the Northwest and California for still for dust. And then we kind of didn't do much at all. And I was living in New York at the time. I went back to college and got like, I had a free, free college. And my wife, she's a PhD in chemistry. She was teaching chemistry at a uh, uh, Catholic college and they got free tuition for spouses. So nice. I like to go to college, finish college for free. I didn't really do anything. My like, major in education didn't didn't do anything with it but i got a college degree nice for free congrats and, man yeah thanks but um yeah a few times during those like 97 98 99 2000 we got together and recorded some stuff and did a few shows here and there and just you know it was kind of we, we got off of epic we wanted to get off of epic just because i don't know they've been whole, going along with q prime and not really at least after the middle of the year of just being out, they kind of, it was a lot probably more to do with Lanigan's heroin problem. Than, okay. Them not promoting the record as much, but I mean, it definitely was with Q prime. I think they just kind of like ended with drops like a hot potato because of Mark, you know, we don't need to deal with this shit. Uh, yeah. We recorded some things that ended up coming out later on that last words thing. Those were all just sort of demos. Like there were, new songs that finally i a lot of it was cool about the songs was i was in new york and just writing stuff because i liked it again instead of being forced to so that was nice and we tried to record them or did record them 
uh, two or three different sessions and didn't do anything with them. I think we used them to like send some record labels, but nobody was, you know, that was rock was kind of like on a downturn for the end of the nineties and really didn't get a lot of any decent offers. You know, we didn't really want to go back to an indie label, which we could have done, but I'm sure we, you know, sub pop would have been like, like excited to put out something by us, but we didn't want to do that. So by 2000, we got that. The last show we played was the experience music project, which is this crazy idea in Seattle. I never heard of that. They had, Frank, what's that? Frank Geary, the insane architect who makes the weird looking buildings. He built this stupid looking building in the Seattle Center. And basically, they put a rock museum in it, like with grunge oh, and right. other. Yeah, okay. yeah, and it was just like we, we went and saw it like, before this. We played, we played the show to open it, you know, and we were headlining. And they like gave us sixty five thousand dollars. I know somehow Lanigan like talked him into giving us sixty five thousand bucks, which was way more than we'd ever paid before. It was nice. like you know going out on going out on top at least. That you know? <laughs> was like it was funny because like that was like all through the career of the band. That was another thing with Dust. It's like everything we ever did did better. You know, like the first we put our own records, then we got signed to SST, and those records would sell, you know, each one would successfully sell more, and they got an epic, and that would sell more, and then Sweet Oblivion was like way more. And then Dust was kind of like, well, it didn't quite do what we were hoping. So that was another reason, probably, is because we'd always been on an upward turn, and suddenly it was kind of like, well, we're back down now. And, uh, but, the last show we went out on top for so much money we actually made you know after the bills were paid we probably made like five ten grand a piece but not too bad you know not at all for an hour's or less work yeah Yeah. Yeah, the weird thing about the show was i did not know it was to be our last show and van didn't know it was to be our last show and apparently Mark did know he was, you know, it didn't surprise me that it was our last show because we hadn't been doing anything. And I was yeah. living in New York, but I guess Van was pretty pissed about it because I just after the I didn't know till after the show. And like somebody came and said, hey, you know, Mark said that this was your last show. And I'm like, it is. And I was kind of shocked, but I don't know. It did. It did kind of like, you know, it was a very, like probably like 10 years of like decompression of like not having the band and not being in the band decompression and depression i mean yeah. it was, and i really didn't do anything myself because i was living out in the middle of texas not i don't, still don't know anybody here but finally i uh kind of caught up with technology kind of caught up with me and i was able to do records just at home on my own that sound pretty pretty close to stuff you do in the studio especially nowadays where you never know what where or what people are recording <laughs> on digital technology yeah. and stuff but yeah, I I put out um, three records in the last ten years just on my own and with the help of I got a couple of labels that do vinyl. A guy in Italy called the label called Gensbussy Ruptum, who apparently has some kind of in with uh, some vinyl uh, manufacturer because like the two records he's done on vinyl, he like took him about two or three months from the idea he would do it until it got out. And you know, most people are like, man, we can't get our vinyl, but this guy is like. I don't know how he does it so fast. So like, I think it was like last uh, August. He was like, when I put out my first record that I've done 10 years ago called the Microdot Gnome. And mm, yeah. he called me up about it and said, Oh, he want cause he'd already done the unicorn curry, which is my record. that came out a couple of years ago. 
and he was going to re-release this one and I'm like, okay you know i'm figuring okay it's gonna take at least like four or five months and I'm like uh in like what was it middle of december it was like i think he i think he told me first of october in the middle of december he had the records like vinyl <laughs> it was like two and a half months or something i was like really hmm. i don't know how he does it so i don't know but uh, yeah so i did that i did uh just all stuff i did myself at home and made it sound hopefully like it's a real a real album i try my best i hate mixing but my second record i had uh van mm-hmm. help me some he, he got it on vinyl and had got jack and dino to mix it because he's mm-hmm. fr- good friends with him and uh, that came out let's see the first record microdon known album I put out in 2010, just digitally. It didn't come out in vinyl until just recently. But then uh, in 2016, that was the one band did on his label called Strange Earth Records uh, called Ether Trippers. Now, Jack and Dion mixed it, and which I, I used like program drum, you know, like samples. Okay. He was like, he was actually surprised. <laughs> he was like, well, this was really good, actually. Because at first I was, well, yeah, I said it to him, I was like, he's going to hate the drums. But his, know, his remastering of like Soundgarden Ultra Mega OK was, uh, yeah. it was light years better than the original oh, version. Yeah. Well, he's a, he's really great stuff, musically, recording wise. So I just kept going myself. And then I put out the record uh, Unicorn Curry like two years ago. And I managed to get uh, this, uh, hooked up with this Italian company that does vinyl and also another company that does uh, CDs in the U.S. called Forbidden Place Records, and they put it out on CD. And I'm promoting that stuff as much as I can on Facebook, and then promoting the Screaming Tree stuff. And yeah. I'm working on a new record right now, which I may have a band play bass on. See on Where's Van located right now? He's in Stanwood, Washington. It's about 50 miles north of... Seattle. Okay. Um, he works. He has a he has a really good job that he keep. He, he's like over the years he keeps having problems. Like I don't know. He has different kind of alcohol and drug problems in Atlantic. But um, he has had to go to rehab several times. But they keep. He doesn't lose his job because of the screaming trees. They like the screaming trees so much. That's how he got the job. <laughs> the job is like it's a hundred thousand dollar a year job working for the local electricity company, you know. And he like monitors like the electrical grid and All stuff. Right. right now he's doing it at home because of the virus thing. Mm, he's got nice. like five monitors at home, and he'll call me during the day. And sometimes I don't know if he's been drinking. <laughs> he sounds yeah. like maybe he has. I don't know. But uh, yeah, so that that's what he. Does you know I'm I'm lucky because my my wife has a really nice job here in San Angelo and I just have to do I used to have a job delivering papers for years just so I had something to do and to make some money you know yeah. we're doing okay now with with that there's bands that I that are definitely lesser known than Screaming Trees that I've come across over the years that yeah. they get a little bit of money thrown at them to reunite and do something has there oh, ever okay. been any type of offer to 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 put the band back together. There's not not an offer, but we did talk about it about seven or eight years ago. It was like, see, we we had those recordings um, from the late two thousand or late nineties, mm-hmm. uh, and we were like, well, you know, so they're pretty decent stuff, and we decided we wanted to put it out. And Barrett had been starting a record label called Senyata Records, so he decided he was going to put it out. So we went and got it mixed, and it came out in 2012. It was called Last Words. You've seen that one? It's Last Words, the final recordings and it's got all the stuff yeah, that yeah I, know, I know what you're talking about right so right around that time we were kind of like well maybe we could you know and get back together and Lanning was like actually kind of interested 
at the time I was kind of interested too. Now I just don't think, you know, I would be interested at all. Cause I mean, the only, and the only, the really only driving idea was that we could make some money. And yeah. I hate that, you know, I would hate to get back together because we'd make some money. I mean, if it was some huge amount of money, it would be really hard to, cause we never, you know, one time way back in probably 92 or 93, we got offered $10,000 from Budweiser to do a commercial for them where we rewrote nearly lost you as something like nearly lost a bud. Mm-hmm. And I remember we had a meeting with our big time lawyer, Rosemary Carroll, who I'm not sure she had something to do with Nirvana. And I've seen her name, in like, you know, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> musical history stuff, but she was our lawyer too. And we had the meeting with her and we're like, uh, luckily, I don't know what I was because like ten thousand dollars, but used to seem like a lot of money. It's yeah. like pocket change now. Like you know, you learn about how much it costs actually to live, to have a house and a car, <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. right? Not that I'm getting that much money, but but on the other hand, um, so we decided not to do it. You know, nearly lost a bug. That was, God, I can't even imagine. That would have been, you know not cool so we never did anything i mean we never well, he, on that, that. I just on that budweiser thing here's why it's super smart to do what you did because yeah. if you guys split that four ways that's twenty five hundred dollars each i know what are we we're 20 30 years from that you, you don't have that money but that that commercial still sits out there well here's a good uh, a good story as far as ten thousand dollars for band goes is when we first got signed to epic we the only way want to do a publishing deal you can get an advance like yeah ten thousand dollar advance and we're like, yeah, okay, you know, oh, we get a couple thousand bucks a piece. Well, you know, uh, thirty years later, they still own half our publishing, and I would have made twice as much money if I wouldn't have oh. got that damn ten thousand dollars. You know, it's like, uh, I mean, we do, we do all right. We don't make enough money to live on, but we still, especially the last ten years, like more money has been coming in from from the tree stuff. You know, to make like ten, twenty thousand dollars a year. Well, that's Extra not bad. Money, uh, which is great. No, you know. Actually, yeah, that, that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Like, in a business sense, who owns Screaming Trees? You guys don't have an official website. Uh, it takes you to a Facebook page. No, we were well, we were a partnership, but it just costs yeah. money to have lawyers and and or we didn't have a lawyer, but we we didn't have a manager. We had financial managers and accountants, and in Seattle still that we had for like ten years. So. um we just decided to disband the partnership because it was just, you know, you have to file taxes on it every year instead of just, you know, you have to wait for the accountants to get the tax stuff done. And it's just saying that you didn't make any money, you know, cause we weren't making the band wasn't making yeah. money. We personally were making some money, but that's coming to us. So we just get, we just cut that off. And so, um, you know, we all own it. Right. Still, if you want to, you know, get technical about it, but if we do get any money, we just split it up appropriately for, you know, most of the money we get is like publishing. So that goes to each person personally. We don't have to worry about it. If we got to check for the screaming trees, it'd be kind of like, well, how are we going to do this? Because we wouldn't like, you know, somebody would have to cash it and like figure out if they had to pay, like, you know, fix the tax situation because we don't have a yeah, tax yeah. number anymore, you know, because it's not a, a partnership. So it's kind of confusing. So there's no like official Screaming Trees merch out there or anything like that? No, like anything you see is not official. <laughs> it's like, it's like see Screaming Trees, unless it's on eBay, it's like an old thing maybe. But uh, all it's like there's Screaming Trees t shirts all over the place. And, and you know, and some people like, you know, like Epic, like we get paid 
from you know our publishing company. I, we probably maybe someday we'll have paid back our million. We owed Epic like a million dollars or something <laughs> with all those videos and recordings and stuff. Fuck them. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, but you get um, right away get any publishing money from records you sell from stuff like that. So that's what we actually do make money on, which is cool. That's and, good. And on streaming stuff, but SST is kind of weird about paying. Hey, you know, they uh, I paid it on and off for years. I've heard bad stories about SST as far as that stuff goes. You know, I don't know the internal technical stuff, but you know, like a lot of labels in the late. 80s they just had too many bands and that's when that's one reason we decided to go for a different label was because they put out our album buzz factory and they didn't put it out we like had a tour all set up went on tour and the records weren't in the stores because they had been running out of money to make them you know which kind of sucks so that's what happens and then they a lot of bands they didn't pay but they they start paying us like and giving us statements like in the 90s then they didn't pay us for a long time and then about 10 years ago they paid us some we haven't heard anything from them in the meantime they put out they're still manufacturing stuff and they put it yeah. all digitally and stuff so they must have us up i'm trying to get a hold of the guys it's sort of hard you know it's just basically great gear and then he moved down here somewhere like a, somewhere close to austin or something. huh yeah um, he still has all the tapes and stuff from all those bands. Yeah, a band locally here, Husker Du, they, they, uh, oh, yeah. Bob Mould just talked about uh, how they can't do any deluxe reissues of all that stuff because basically SST is impossible. Yeah, and that's with. the other thing that sucks with SST is I'd really love to you know be able to put out like a box set or something like that. And a lot of people are like, you mm-hmm. should do this. They're like, yeah, well, um, I would do it if I had. The other problem is I don't know. You know, we don't have any tape. Like our tapes are like, where are our tapes? I have no idea. Like, even like the multi tracks, like Epic maybe has them, the stuff we did in Vault somewhere. But like as far as all the SST stuff, I mean, SST might have master, you know, stereotapes, but the multi tracks are probably yeah. somebody's. Somebody who have no idea or they are in the garage, you brought them in a pawn shop because Lanigan, <laughs> Lanigan has them. For a long time, we kept them uh, a bunch of tapes. At Susan Silver's office, but then Lanigan got him, and I think he may have pawned him or something. I don't know what he. Oh, dear God! You know, because you know, I guess in the nineties, some old band screen shoes you could get twenty dollars for these tapes. I don't know. Mm. So I don't know if you ever wanted to remix anything, it probably wouldn't be possible. Or so that that kind of stuff. Because you know, I have a I have a lot of stuff we'd like to put out. I don't know what Mark think about it if they even ask if he like put out he got like a deal put our first record on cd like about 15 years ago that clairvoyance album and didn't even tell us about it which was nice of him. I, I think he gave us a little bit of money <laughs> what what, what is your, what is your relationship with mark now um you know i talked to him like uh, it was a long time ago now when we were talking about getting back together like what we did in like 2012 or 13 and then when the book came out, I like I saw I saw like one page from it that was like probably well maybe it wasn't the worst page about me, but there's a lot of nasty stuff about me. But you know, and we didn't get to we didn't get along well, so that's probably true. But at one point, this page I saw, he said all oh, those those songs were unbelievable shit or something like that. Calling the song, you know, that was what, that really upset me. But yeah, actually. Um, Said so I made a comment on about Facebook. This is really 
upset me. I didn't say anything bad about Mark because I really, you know, I musically respect him and I you know, love his voice still. And I'm being honored he sang on all the Screaming Trees stuff. And, yeah. And I like it all too. But he actually, like, corresponded with me and was kind of cool about it. So I don't know. I'm not mad at him or anything. Just, he's just the same way he always has been. <laughs> so, you know, um, so actually, the earphone. I, I only uh, had an I only uh, have so far read an excerpt from the book and it's yeah. one of the most detailed spiraling drug you know yeah. junkie stories ever so was was that largely his issue or were there other other guys were you all dealing with something well I was the guy who wasn't dealing with anything. not I, at all no, no alcohol I'm, nothing or I drank occasionally. I did not drink. I used to smoke pot once in a while, but I never did anything else. I did, you know, it's like that, that's the psychedelic in you. I know. Well, see, the thing was, is I love psychedelic music, and then finally, when we we went on tour in uh, ninety, the fall of ninety six, and went to California, and there's this guy there at one of the shows who was like, "Yeah, you guys are really great. You know, uh, you got an album." And I was like, "Yeah." He said, "If you send me your clairvoyance record, I'll send you like tabs of acid." And I said, okay, what, you know, so I gave my dress and a few weeks later, letter shows up with five little paper things. And I'm like, I don't know, I have no experience. I smoked pot a few times and I took one and then I didn't think it was working. And I took another, I took all of it. <laughs> I had like 24 hour acid trip that was good and bad, but it was definitely very, very influential on the songwriting. And that was the only time I ever did acid. I think it was probably in a lot of ways it was good that I did so much and it kind of turned me off to wanting to do it again because I probably okay. done it more, which would not have been a good thing. But yeah, all, all those, all those like the songs are like, uh, even if, and especially when and Buzz Factory and Invisible Liner are all very influenced by that one acid trip, I think. Plus my love of psychedelic music, you know. Can't yeah. discount that. I mean, that's what I'm it's by now. <laughs> it's my love of psychedelic music. I'm not sitting in here in Texas doing acid all the time. Or even smoke, I even smoke <laughs> 25, 24, well, 23 years. I don't know. So, really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, 92 was the last time for me. 92, yeah. I, I just never did anything for me. I don't. I really don't have a problem with it. I'll legalize the shit. I smoke. A little bit on and off, and then like when we were working on, like, on dust, I was actually buying it occasionally, like to go to sleep or something. But it just made me so sleepy. I, just, uh, I don't know. We had some really good hash a couple times in Europe. That, mm. that stuff was <laughs> crazy. That was really sad. That was pretty psychedelic. That's almost like doing acid. Like, stuff. But, what about Barrett? Uh, do you still talk to him at all? Yeah, occasionally. Yeah, he like pays us money sometimes from that last word record, so he calls me. Says hi. Yeah, I talked to him two or three months ago, probably. Yeah, I talk, we actually talked, man, we talked to Mark Pickerel um, a while back. We had a three way call a couple of times. Oh, nice. And so it was cool. Yeah, I mean, you know, as far as talking with Lanigan, it's like, you know, I wouldn't. He actually used to call me up like when we first, the band first um, broke up. I was living, moved out here to Texas for the first year or two. He would call me up and like want to do something else, but we never, never worked out. Then I guess he got in Queens of the Stone Age and kind of forgot about doing anything. I mean, he wanted me like to do a record with just me and him, not reunite Screaming Trees, but just like do another record because I sent him some 
Huh. Like, see, still trying to rely on my songs. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> your own songs. Damn. Have you played on any of his stuff? Did I see something like that? On what? On his stuff? Yeah, any of his solo albums? No, I never played anything on his. Not me, but other people. Man. I don't know who else. He's probably had, he's had so many. So many records himself, and then he's like collaboration insanity. I can't never see anybody collaborates with him. It's like I don't know. Maybe they pay him a lot of money. I don't know. But that's what yeah, they okay. did with Mark is he's got his career in music. But you know, if it's like I don't know what he's doing right now with the virus and stuff, because he's probably having trouble financially. But you know, my we have my wife and I feel okay, so we don't have to worry about. Being destitute on the street, and Van apparently has a job that he can go back to. Yeah, right. He can get hammered every day and uh, still work, make 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 six figures. So he's my hero officially now. By the way, <laughs> like, well, that's the thing is like, you know, I've been down here for twenty years, and occasionally I've had people recognize me in town and stuff like that, um, which surprised the hell out of me. It's like, you know, especially like 10, 15 years ago. A lot of the people had like been at the, some of the '90s shows, like the Lollapalooza shows in Texas, yeah. or like the Spin Doctor solo song, you know, thing. Fans, it's just like it's insane having been in the screen trees up there. It's like you know, because that was the one. If we were famous anywhere in Seattle, we were famous and continued to okay. be famous over the years because you know we're like kind of. I mean, just the name Screaming Trees. I mean, it never we never thought of it in that context. You know, being from the Northwest, I don't think until. <laughs> Until after um, we had it for a long time, it's like oh, because Ellensburg is ha- in the desert, but it's right on the edge of the forest. Like the forest ends like a few miles outside of town, and then it turns mm-hmm. into that eastern Washington desert. Um, Can I share a, a really bad screaming yeah. trees joke with you? Yeah, sure. Okay, this goes back a ways, long like back to the nineties. Uh, I work in printing; we deal with yeah. a lot of paper. And, uh, you know, there's also photocopiers around and papers, you know, sheets will get jammed in there. Right. And, you know, you know, like Texas Jam, you live in Texas. I would go, paper jam featuring screaming trees. <laughs> yeah, screaming right. trees are getting turned into paper. <laughs> I was making dad jokes in my 20s. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, that's horrible. Hey, well, uh, you've been so kind with your time. Uh, l- l- let's get back to the record just a little bit. What are right. your final? What, what, how do you look back on it now? It's such a cool album. I mean, it, yeah. oh, one thing I, I should mention that like a lot of grunge bands didn't really do great with sequencing. This is a masterful job of yeah. sequencing from track one to track to the very end, even if you get it on vinyl. But so there's a compliment for you. But but looking back, how do you feel about it? You know, it took us places we never would have imagined going. You know, the whole success of the record. I mean, as far as you know, I it's I like all our records. I like, but my favorite records of ours are probably Dust and Invisible Iron. But it's not like I think all oh, the other ones are shit. Right. You know, it's just like personal preference. But um, you know, it was it was fun actually having done something like a band, you know, getting together and rehearsing. And hanging out with each other and kind of being friends for a while there, you know, that was a good thing. And plus, you know, a lot of memories associated with like being that was the time I, because I, I never really lived in Seattle more than a couple of years, uh, like so probably between 92 and 95 or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, so, you know, a lot of good memories about hanging out with other people in Seattle. And stuff like that. It's like, 
was plenty for you know i mean because a lot of people were like who can't believe the screaming trees never you know got bigger or whatever but i don't know you know i don't know if i would have been that except for like making a lot of money would have been nice but <laughs> you know that's not what i'm really about musically you know it's like i just want people to you know to have a, be a band and a real band and you know people listen to it. you know it's nice to have people you know, because I feel bad for people who are like, you know, like just started music and they can't get anyone to listen to their music. And it's like, uh, I, I'm spoiled when that comes, you know, even though maybe, mm-hmm. you know, my new stuff might sell 100, two, 300 copies or something, but I don't care how many it sells. And, you know, it's a few people that listen to it. That's all I'm, you know, so I'm spoiled. At least I do have a few people <laughs> listen to my stuff when I put it down. So. You know, can can I ask you something as as you know more one on one? You know, we're, you know, I, I'm in my late forties. You, you, you're ahead yep. of me a little bit based on the yeah. your age in yeah, 1985. Okay. Um, th- I'm glad that I went through that time with the band that I did. You know what I mean? We we, yeah. we did it for almost 20 years. That's and and but you know, we never really got out of the metro area where I live, you know what I mean? Yeah. But but as I get older, I don't necessarily crave that, but I I'm I, it feels good when I think about those days is all I'm getting at. Yeah. Um is that kind of where you're at now? You're kind of like doing your own thing and and all, but you're yeah. really happy that you had that. Oh yeah, because that was like, you know, I mean when I was like a teenager, teenager in like in my early twenties, that was like my dream was to be what we became. Yeah, you know, I mean, and the, it, we went way farther than I ever dreamed of. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know what it'd be weird. I can't even really think of what it'd be like to have done it, you know, and just not really clicked and not got to do what we did because we did. <laughs> so it's hard. Yeah, of, right. you know, I can't remember that. So I talking to people, it's like, well, they. Yeah, you know, but I've, I've gotten a lot more into the Screaming Tree stuff the last year because I've been using it to using it to promote my own stuff. Well, you sure. know, which is great, and I, I think I think it makes a lot of people happy. You know, that somebody's actually talking about it and tell stories about you know stuff that happened and maybe stuff. Well, let's mention that. Fun. What what is the name of the group that people can check out on Facebook? Oh yeah, it's just um, well, there's a couple. We have two pages. We have an official Screaming Trees page. This this mm-hmm. uh, screaming trees page, yes, easy to find. Yeah, that's pretty easy. Yeah, if you look screaming trees on uh, Facebook, you'll find that the page. And then the other one's called actually this guy started it uh, way back uh, called well I don't know what it used to be called. It's called Screaming Trees Fan Club now. And yeah. I started posting stuff on it uh, about a year and a half ago, and just kind of ended up taking it over. And now we had like three hundred members when I started. Now we got like twenty five hundred members. So. That, that's the Screaming Trees fan club on Facebook. That, and you're that, very that, active on it. Yeah, yeah. I put, yeah, I try to post something every day. So, and sometimes I tell a story about stuff. Sometimes. No, it's, it's, it's oh, a God, lot of fun. Yeah, I checked it out, trying to connect yeah. with you, and uh, I definitely, if people are fans, they definitely want to head there because it's, it's a really yeah. cool group. And and yeah, you, you're, it's all positive and upbeat too. You know what I mean? Yeah, I try to. Yeah, I try not to be negative about stuff. I mean, I don't want to be negative about stuff. That's what. <laughs> Mark's book. I want to read it. I haven't read it. I've only read like I've heard stuff from other people telling me, you know, well, there's some good stuff in it. And then I've read like a couple pages that I didn't even want to see. I just saw it on by accident. Like somebody had an advanced copy last mm. one, like winter. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'll read this. It was like, oh, I shouldn't have read that. <laughs> you know? Wow. Um, 
But, well, it's easy for me. I'm an outsider. Like yeah. the the one chapter I read, I'm like, okay, I have got to read this book. This sounds like one of those like per, right. like if he's willing to acknowledge this stuff, he's telling everything. But uh, I'm not a guy who was in a band with him. You know what I mean? No, and that's the thing is like I because I always went back to the hotel and and went to sleep or whatever, and I, I find out what happened because when I talked to Van, I'm like. Really? That's what happened after? <laughs> you know, find out like what kind of stuff happens, and, you know, by reading the book. That remind me of some of the stuff that I didn't know about me. You know, that I'm sure I'll find if I do read it. I don't know if I can get through it. Okay, but after having like I don't know, he it's weird because he like said at some point that he had tried to contact us. Not me, but Van about what yeah. was in the book, but he couldn't get a hold of Van. But he did other people, like you know, other people. He said talk shit about, but he didn't yeah. like he needed to get a hold of me for some reason. And he kind of after the book, he did send me a letter, <clears throat> which is okay. <laughs> I get it. So well, you know, I'll leave it between you guys. So. Yeah, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm I'm not gonna have to go out and talk a bunch of shit about it. now. Van might go out and talk shit about it <laughs> because you know I. Like I said, before. hey, send him my way. I'll let him talk shit. Yeah, I respect Mark musically, and you know, and he's—I know he's known what his personality's like, and it's like it always was. Now, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, hasn't changed over the years. But I mean, getting to do the stuff I did with him, I can't—you know—that was awesome. I mean, it wouldn't have turned out to be a screaming trees without him. Sure, in some like you know, sixties revival. 80s band <laughs> with a couple maybe with a record or two that people are like oh yeah I really like that band but don't ever you know. and that comes through when you talk about this stuff I think it's clear that you, you have a lot of respect for the, the whole scene you, you, yeah. you, you come across very honest it's very believable so yeah well that's the thing with I mean I don't know about Mark because he's so grumpy but band me you know we just try to be <laughs> he looks people. grumpy yeah, he does. But he could be really nice. That's the thing. It's like, you know, sure, yeah. really, there's a lot of pictures of him smiling. Like, whenever I post a picture of him, he's smiling. Like, that, I he's happy when he shows up at 6 a.m. and you have a beer crack for yeah, him. Yeah, right? he was pretty happy with it. You know, so. <laughs> yeah. But we're just, you know, we're a regular band and our, our family, we're just regular people. And, you know, we just happen to be in a band that we had some success with. So, and that was it. We're really happy about having done it. So. It's not like, damn it, why didn't we do this or that? Or you would have done that. Things would have been different. Yeah. So, you know, well, we, I don't you know what? No matter what you do in life, you're going to have a, a certain level of that kind of regret. Yeah, it, right. it, it's a waste to, to, to focus on it. Yeah. I'm just really thankful to have done what I did because, you know, it's the kind of thing that so many people, including me, dreamed of doing. I and mean, I actually did right. it. It's really cool. So. Well, thank you very much, Gary thank Lee Connor. Of uh, the Screaming Trees fame, and of course the the Micro Dot Gnome, yeah. uh, as you like to be known as. Uh, uh, just all the best, and is there anything else you want to promote? Uh, oh, Bandcamp, like the Micro Dot Gnome, uh, Gary Lee Connor. It's Gary Lee Connor. It's just the nicknames, the Micro Dot Gnome page on. Sure, Bandcamp. I'll I'll throw a link in the in the show yeah. notes for this when it goes up. Yeah, if you go Gary Lee Connor at Bandcamp, you'll find him. Google, you'll find him. This is one of the best interviews I've ever done. Cool. Uh, you, you were you were candid and fun, and everybody's going to enjoy it. So that's awesome. All right, and I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, stay cold in Texas. All right. Yeah. Well, my air conditioning. So as long as the air conditioning doesn't go off. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
right. Right on, man. Thanks Uh, a lot. Thanks, Gary. All right. Bye-bye. achieve the American dream, the big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shot? Would they shot? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.